I'm going to teach you something that I'm going to call the blessing of the Bereshit prophecy. The blessing of the Bereshit prophecy. If you have a good attitude, you can sit down. There are things that are ordained in heaven that both have and will occur in the earth. And based on Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, these things have been declared in the beginning. In the beginning. Hebrew is an amazing language because Hebrew is actually three languages. There are 22 what we would call letters or what teachers call pictograms. 22 letters that are in the Hebrew alphabet. So they are something that we actually can see And then Hebrew is different from all other languages because every letter in the alphabet has been assigned a number. Starting with Aleph, one, it goes through the number of 10, and then it goes 10, 20, 30, gets up to 100, then it goes to 300, etc. So not only does it have an actual letter that you can see. Each of these letters have been given a number. And it is also phonetic. It is, it is a spoken language. So it is, it is visible, it's numerical, and it's audible. And there's really no other language like that in the world. If you are like me and you believe in the literal word of God that every scripture is given, that every word, every letter, then it is very apparent to me that the world spoke one language until Babel. And it was at Babel for the first time that the Lord varied or confused what the Bible said, the languages. If I take those scriptures literally, that tells me there was one language spoken up until that time. There's an amazing verse to me, it's in Acts 26. And what I'm going to teach you here tonight is not something that I just came up with this week. I would say that tonight is the sum total of everything that I've been studying since I was 19 years old. I, I think I'm on to something. It's going to be controversial, but 
my guess is as good as the rest of those fellows. This is what it says in Acts 26 and verse 14. This is, of course, Saul in front of Agrippa giving his testimony of his conversion. And he said, when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Now, there's two ways to look at this. God, being who he is, all-knowing, can speak to anyone in a language that they understand. It just fascinates me that when the Lord spoke to Saul, he spoke in Hebrew. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God. 2 Corinthians 3.16 teaches that. It says, all of it is profitable for reproof, correction, instruction, righteousness. It also says that the Bible was not written by men. It says that no prophecy is a matter of one's own interpretation. But it says men spake as they were moved on by the Holy Ghost. That's... 2 Peter chapter 1, 20 and 21. Jesus said that not even the smallest letter in Scripture would be overlooked, but that jots and tittles could be trusted. That's in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 18. So if every letter in the Bible is trustworthy to study and to learn, then what was the very first thing that came out of God's mouth when he spoke the universe into existence? What was the first thing that God wanted Moses to record? in his written communication to us. It comes across in our English language as in the beginning. What takes three words to convey in English is conveyed with one word in Hebrew. Bereshit. The, the, the was added for I suppose, to make it a little clearer. But the truest rendition is not in the beginning, but in beginning. The word Bereshit is comprised of six Hebrew letters. And I don't have a marker board. I used to have one. I'm going to get another one because I can see this coming on with the months coming and where I feel like the Lord is trying to lead me. Behind me is proper Hebrew letters. This is the way it looks in, in classic block printed Hebrew. But this is not the way it looks in ancient Hebrew. Ancient Hebrew looks different than what you're seeing here today. 
but the letters are still the same. You lead, read it from the right to the left. Bet, Resh, Aleph, Shin, Tav, Yud, Tav. That's how it's pronounced. Each Hebrew letter has, of course, a letter. It has a number and it has a word attached to it. Now it is, I think, a no-brainer. I've never been a numerologist, even though there is a book in the Bible called Numbers. I've never been one of these guys that put a lot of stock in adding up all these numbers and whatever, coming up with 666 or whatever the, the tally may be. But it is a no-brainer that there are numbers in the Bible that stand out more than other numbers. Without a doubt, seven is one of those numbers. A prime, I guess you could call it, can only be divided by itself. I think all of us will agree that from the very beginning, the Lord set up a system based on seven. Six days of work, one day of rest. And I have always been convinced, years, uh, I I got it from G.T. Haywood, it's where I first started when I was 16. Haywood was a great preacher in Indianapolis back in the 20s, died in the early 30s. But Haywood believed that the secret to understanding the Bible were the seven days of creation and the seven feasts of Israel. There is a verse in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8, which you've heard many times. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Years ago, I found the work of an old Irish bishop by the name of James Usher. James Usher got his inspiration from uh, Isaac Newton, the guy famous for having an apple fall on his head. If you studied Isaac Newton, you will realize he wasn't just a mathematician. He was deeply, deeply entrenched and involved in understanding the Bible. Usher, like many of us, believed that the Bible was literal. Usher did something that amazed me. He took these things that have always fascinated me, the genealogies. For years, I have preached to you from the genealogies in the Bible. Those unreaped corners (laughs) that nobody else ever preaches from. And I believe I've been given a small insight into some magnificent truths in those genealogies and There are many, many more nuggets still yet to be discovered. But Usher did something amazing. Took him years. He wrote every genealogy that was in that Old Testament. He wrote them all down. Every one of them. 
and where possible put how many years these people lived. Usher came to the conclusion that the beginning was 4004 BC. And he went so far as to give an exact date of October the 23rd, 4004 BC. He believed that is when things started. And, and this is very fascinating because it changes everything for me. Because for years, I just always assumed that Jesus died in the year of 33. But if you study Usher's work, you've got not 4,000 years, but 4,004. You can put three and a half years within that four-year span. It's because of this reason that if you do any real serious study of this, it, 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 as near as I can tell, it's, it's a foregone conclusion among the people that really are much, much smarter than I'll ever be and have spent much more time than I have. They all believe Jesus died in the year of 30 A.D. What you have to understand for me to convey this to you tonight is it is so apparent to me in the Bible that there was a first Adam and there was a last Adam. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 45 says, And so it is written, the first Adam was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Verse 47 says, the first man is of the earth earthy, the second man is the Lord from heaven. So Corinthians 15 talks about two Adams. Obviously, the first Adam, the one that's given to us in Genesis, and the last Adam, who he said was the Lord from heaven. So I think you've got Adam and Jesus. The first Adam and the last Adam. Now according, this is what it says in Numbers chapter 4 and verse 3. Because see, we don't have any verse in the Bible that said Jesus died when he was 33 and a half. But we do have these verses. In Numbers 4 and verse 3 it says, From 30 years and upward, even to 50 years old, all who enter the service to do the work in the tent of meeting. In order to be in the military, you had to be 20 years old. In order to work around the tabernacle, you had to be 25. But you could not be a priest until you were 30. You were publicly washed. There was a pronouncement made. You began your 20-year ministry, 30 to the age 50. It is widely accepted that Jesus ministered for three and a half years. 
If he began his ministry, as I'm convinced he did in Luke 4, after turning 30 and being publicly washed by John the Baptist, then it does bring us to the conclusion that Jesus was here for 33 and a half years. And this is when it gets interesting. I am absolutely and completely convinced that the similarities between the first Adam and the last Adam are exact. I'll give you an example. Jesus said as Jonah was three days in the belly of the whale, so shall the Son of Man be three days in the heart of the earth. I've heard all these sermons for years about Jonah swimming in that fish's belly and there was driftwood down there and seaweed and he was pulling seaweed off and treading water. I I never did believe that. I'm convinced Jonah died when he was swallowed by that fish and went to the depths of the ocean. And when he was regurgitated by that fish, he was resurrected. I can't prove that. But that fits the narrative. I'm convinced that he died just like Jesus died and was resurrected. The difference is that Jesus was resurrected by his own power. Jonah didn't do it by himself. Let me ask you one telling question. And this is, the, this is the fulcrum of this whole thing. There is absolutely no way that Adam sinned as soon as he showed up on this earth. And this is the one fly in the ointment. And I'll be, I'm trying to be brutally... My, my, my attempt here tonight is not to exalt myself and not to promote myself. What I would love to do is to inspire you with me to get into the word on a deeper basis. See, I'm convinced that the law of the Lord is perfect. It says that in Psalms 19 and verse 7. Law of the Lord is perfect. Converting the soul. I think Adam sinned when he was 33 and a half years old. Now here's the fly in the ointment. Jesus came to the world as an infant. Adam did not come as an infant. But if those two Adams walked the same path, then the original Adam was sinless for 33 and a half years. Just like the last Adam was sinless for 33 and a half years. The original Adam required no Savior. Because there was no sin. 
Listen to Romans chapter 5 and verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. That's why I've always said for years, in the book of Genesis, man was made in God's image. Yes? Here's the question. What's God's image? The answer to that is in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4. And whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, comma, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Colossians chapter 1 I don't know, Matthew, probably verse 15. Said that Jesus Christ was the image of the invisible God. Is it 15? Yeah. I do get one right every now and then. Hebrews chapter 1 says, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son, who he said, uh, he appointed him to be heir of all things, and uh, by whom also he made the worlds. And then in verse 3, it says he's the brightness of his glory. And then it says this, the express image of his person. You've possibly heard someone refer to God in three persons. The word persons, plural, is not in the Bible. There's only one place in it. It's here. It's person, singular. It's saying that the Son is the express image of his person. The word express here is not talking trains. Uh, the, 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 the dictionary explanation is soul, not S-O-U-L, but S-O-L-E. Soul, unique, one of a kind, can't be reproduced. So if you put 2 Corinthians 4 and 4, Colossians 1 and 15, Hebrews 1 and 3 together, you can scripturally make this collage and say, Jesus Christ was the express image of the invisible God. Which is cool, because man was made in God's image before God even had an image. Because God didn't have an image until Bethlehem. See, God is spirit, John 4 and 24. Luke 24 and 39 said, A spirit hath not flesh and bone as you see me have. No man has seen God at any time. Unto the king, immortal, eternal, invisible, the only wise God. God is spirit. And there's only one legal liquid that can redeem man from sin. And that is blood. If God remains spirit, he can redeem no one. But if God takes on flesh, and that sinless blood is shed, now we're talking. And that's what the Bible says happened. That's why it says in Romans 5 and 14, Adam was the figure of him 
who was to come. I believe if Jesus walked in that door and Adam walked in that door, I, I believe they were identical twins. I can't prove that. I believe that. What I do know is from the beginning, God knew he was coming to this earth in flesh. That was so established that he literally used the blueprint for the man Jesus Christ as the image that would be duplicated in Adam. That Adam was the image of him that was to come. Here's 6.15. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift of grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses under justification. Watch. For if by one man's offense, or Adam in the garden, death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. If one guy botched it up, one man could fix it. But he had to be a very special man. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men under the justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. It's just one of many scriptures I can read to you. I'm convinced the first Adam and the last Adam lived a parallel life. They both lived 33 and a half sinless years. But one at 33 and a half brought death into the earth. But the other at 33 and a half brought righteousness and deliverance to the earth. The law of the Lord is perfect. Do you believe that? Well, then this is what it says. One day with him is a thousand years. And if we take that literal, then there's going to be six days of work and there's going to be a seventh day of rest. Listen to this verse. It's in Revelation 20 and verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. Corinthians says, Know ye not that the saints will judge the world? And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God. And i got to be careful how I say this because this goes everywhere. But I'm going to say it anyway. There's only one bunch of people on this planet still cutting people's heads off. They were beheaded for the word of God which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, 
neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. From the beginning, there's six days of work. The seventh day is a day of rest. If a day with the Lord is a thousand years, then we got 6,000 years of work. And according to Revelation 24, a thousand years of peace or what is known as the millennial reign of Christ. And that's the narrative. The problem comes if you believe that the clock starts ticking from the beginning. I never have. Because if you believe the clock starts ticking at the beginning, then you got a real problem. Because you believe it started 4,000 years B.C., And when Jesus died, 2,000 years, 6,000 total, that brings you to 2,000 A.D. And boy, did we have a lot of that going on with the millennial change. I'll be frank with you. I've lived through a lot of this stuff. I was there in 1988 when a very well-intentioned NASA rocket scientist applied mathematics to the Bible, was convinced, and wrote a book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming in 1988. He was very sincere, but he was sincerely wrong. I wouldn't call him a good friend, but I know him, and I could call him right now if I needed to. He locked his entire church in the building for three days. December 29th, 30th, and 31st. Totally and absolutely convinced that book was right. But he didn't come at midnight of 1988. And to his credit, he said, I made a mistake. He said, because there is no zero in time. There's one B.C., one A.D. There's not one B.C., then the year zero, and then one A.D. He said, I'm off by a year. So he wrote another book, 89 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming in 1989. He'd lost a lot of credibility with the first one, and Jesus didn't show up in 1989 either. The next one that showed up was the year 2000 with the millennium. All the computers were going to crash. All the power grids were going to go down. There wasn't programmed in those original binaries. They weren't trained to deal with 2000. Everything was going to shut down. But it didn't. Then you had 2012, the Mayan calendar. And the Lord didn't come in 2012. And there are people that criticize, and there are people that have lost heart and said 4,000 plus 2,000 is 6,000 years. He was supposed to come in 2,000. He didn't come. So one of two things is going on. The Bible can't be believed, or those are generalizations. All I know is it says the word of the Lord is perfect. And it says a day with the Lord is a thousand years. 
<laughs> I'm convinced the secret to it is the word Bereshit in the beginning. I think the Lord declared the end from the beginning. When you study the word Bereshit, it's, it's six letters in it. It is a legitimate word, Bereshit. I don't have time and I don't have a marker board and I don't want to bury you with a bunch of stale statistics. But there are five words in the word Bereshit. The first two letters are a word. The first three letters are another word. It's fascinating word study. Maybe we'll do it. But since Hebrew is read from the right to the left, it starts up there at the top. Most of the time it's twisted. B or bet. It's always considered to be a house. All of the scholars call it a house. Resh is the next letter. It's the image of a man's head. Aleph, third letter, depicted by an ox's head, which was always a symbol of great power. Shin or sheen is literally what they call the teeth. The fifth one, Yud, image of an arm and a hand. And interestingly enough, the sixth letter, Tav, cross sticks that look really similar to a cross. When you study the letters, it gets really fascinating that there was someone who lived in the house, but that great man left the house. But that great man depicted by Aleph was gnawed on with teeth and was ravaged and brutalized. And that his arms and hands ended up on a cross. This is Bereshit. This is in beginning. I'm convinced this is a prophecy. I'm convinced that within those first words in your Bible, it's telling us, it's giving a time stamp for when things really change. See, I don't think this world was changed when Jesus was born. I think everything changed when he died on the cross. And I got mountains of scripture to prove that with. If that's the case, then the thing you need to worry about is not zero. It's basically 30 AD, the year when Jesus died. And if Jesus died in 30 AD, then let's backtrack four days or 4,000 years. And I think we will come to the very time when Adam sinned. 
See, the first 33 and a half years don't matter. It's what happened at the end of that life. And if that's the case, then the cross is the fulcrum. It's what G.T. Haywood said. He said, history is two words. His story. If you think of a teeter-totter when you were a kid. Man, it's really hard to ride on a teeter-totter by yourself. Really hard. And it's really hard if you've got a real chubby one on the other end or one that's not as big as you are. You need some kind of balance there. That, that, that fulcrum, that pivot point. I'm convinced that's the cross. The reason I believe that is because of time. Time itself can be broken into the binaries of B.C. and A.D. And everything that has a date on it is a testimony to the fact he was here. The time is, is gauged by what happened before he showed up and what happened after he showed up. It's the fulcrum of history. It's the tipping point of history. If that is the case, then the answer is to go two days from Calvary. And if you go two days from Calvary, and a day with the Lord is a thousand years, then the year is 2030. See, there are seven feasts in Leviticus 23. I can prove to you biblically that Jesus died on the very day Jews celebrated Passover. I can prove to you he was in the grave on the very day they celebrated unleavened bread. I can prove to you that Jesus resurrected from the grave on the very day the Jews celebrated first fruits. And in Corinthians 15, on two occasions, he is referred to as the first fruits. I can prove to you that the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost. So for the first four feasts, something happened on the day those Jews celebrated that festival. It just stands to reason to me that if he's honored the first four, he's going to honor the fifth. I believe Jesus is coming back at Rosh Hashanah. I got one in four chance of being right. There is spring, summer, fall, and winter. I believe. In Rosh Hashanah of 2030. And I'll be more specific than that because I did some homework with the Orthodox people today. September the 28th, 2030. 
is when the Feast of Trumpets will be sounded in that year. Now I'm in very unique company here tonight because almost without exception, every other preacher that I've ever known who put a date on the coming of the Lord died before that happened. And the Lord in his mercy got them out of here before they were publicly shamed. Happened to Irvin Baxter, happened to S.G. Norris. I may be putting myself on the clock. My purpose here today is to try and show you, do not lose heart because he didn't come in 2000. I think there's a lot of Bible to prove we've got just a few years left, but not many. The Bible said, redeem the time because the days are evil. I know it says no man knows the day and nobody knows the hour. I get it. There's a scripture in the book of Acts that said, whom the heavens must receive or retain until the restitution of all things. Another scripture said, he's not coming until this gospel has been preached in all the world for a witness and then shall the end come. But I can prove to you that Lee Stone King preached to the whole world a couple years ago. I got a friend in Romulus who goes to the United Nations every month to do a Bible study. And he invited Lee Stone King to speak in front of the General Council of the United Nations. Stone King was terrified. What's he going to do? And then he just realized, I'm going to do what the Apostle Paul did on Mars Hill. I'm going to give my testimony. And he died in an airport in Sydney. And my dear friend, Ted Slack, scooped him up and took him home and nursed him for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. It changed Lee Stone King. And he said, God restored me and gave me a few more years to preach. But at the end of his message to the United Nations, he said, I have one thing to offer you. I give you Jesus. When it was done... My friend in Romulus said, how, how many languages was that translated in? And they said, we have translated Reverend Stone King's message into every known language and dialect in the earth today. So, with the internet and all these other things that we have, we do have the tools to preach the gospel to the whole world today. I'm not here to get you to say raw, raw. I'm here to sober you and redeem the time. Whatever you believe, I don't think we have much of it left. It's time to get serious about praying, getting into that word, being a witness, and being an asset for the master. We're in the last laps now, folks. Let's make them count. Will you stand? Lord Jesus, we understand according to your word that there's only one to be exalted. There's only one to ever be lifted up, and that's you.
Your job is to be exalted and our job is to be humbled. Your job is to go up and our job is to go down. We ask you humbly to forgive us of any time we've ever exalted ourselves, that we've ever been so presumptuous to think that we deserve to share the stage with you. You invite us to your throne and you said we sit together with you in heavenly places. But I do know, Lord Jesus, that right now I would be the last one to get on that stage and quickly run in that chair. Father, your word says your name is above every name. But it also says that it's high and lifted up. And I expect this people in this place tonight to join with me. And not just be content with an elevated master. But for us to have the revelation and understanding that we can literally get beneath the name. And we can lift it to a place it will not go to on its own. You need a church to get beneath your name. And to lift that name above every opponent, every enemy, every obstacle, every hurdle, any presumptuous spirit, anything that would try to assume that they deserve the same attention, glory, majesty, and honor as you. We are here to humbly and freely confess, Lord, that the Lord Almighty Omnipotent reigneth. And I ask you, Lord, to take away the frivolity, not to diminish the laughter and not to steal joy from our lives, but to let there be a seriousness that comes upon us and a sobriety that would come into our spirit. And realize the day of playing games is over. The day of fooling around is over. That it's serious now. And we're on the clock. And we're asking you humbly God to let that sternness seep into our heart. And for us to serve you. Serve you with intention. I intend to be ready when you come. I intend to be right and ready when you appear. I do not intend just to watch, but I intend to couple my watching with praying. Because in an hour that we think not, the Son of Man is coming to gather up your jewels. Lord Jesus, let that sense of purpose come into the church with a revelatory understanding that we now have got to do our very best. Our very best life has got to be lived now. Yesterday doesn't matter. It doesn't matter our foibles, our failures, our stumblings. What matters from this point forward, help us to get a revelation of how critical and how important it is for us to please you with our life. And if that's the case, then that prophecy will be a blessing to us. And it will not be a burden. And it will not be a judgment. We ask these these things humbly in your name. Amen. Hallelujah. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name.